You can go ahead and open your Bibles to Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 8. If while I'm talking, someone would check the page number of a pew Bible, because I forgot to do that. Of course, in checking it, you know it now, and then I'll announce it to you. So it's a little redundant, but I would like to do that anyway. You can just yell it out to me. 652, page 652 in the Pew Bible there. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, we would love for you to take that one as a gift from NBC. You can often tell where someone is headed by what they are wearing or what they are doing. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, at work... I have a certain thing that I wear. I work on an extension campus, so I don't have to get dressed up every day, you know. I don't have to look super nice. Some might wear, you know, some jeans and a polo. But when I go to the main campus, and when I get back, everybody knows where I've been. If they see me before I'm going, they know where I'm going. They say, oh, are you going to the main campus? Based on how I'm dressed, they can see where I'm headed. This is true in a lot of different ways. I coach baseball as well. When we leave the house and my son has his baseball uniform on, they know that he is going to do what? Play a baseball game. See, you, you know how it works. You know where someone is going based on how they are dressed. Uh, you might also know where someone is headed based on what they are doing. If you're going to be a doctor, what are you going to do? You're going to go to medical school. You're going to study certain things. And you're going to practice certain things before you go and be a doctor and try to practice it on a human, right? A lot of medical people here. And so I think somebody just said, hopefully, right? You don't go study electrical engineering and figure out how the circuit board works. And then somebody says, hey, why don't you perform heart surgery now? They're not the same. What you're going to do, where you're headed, you practice those things now. Isaiah is a, is a book of a story of going home. But when we open up to the first page of Isaiah, the first chapter, we see the city of Jerusalem, Zion, who are supposed to be the holy of people of God, and yet they are riddled with sin, iniquity, and transgression. But by the time we get to chapter 66, that city is a righteous city, a holy city where God dwells and is honored and glorified once again. And the chapters between are about how do we get from chapter 1 to chapter 66. And there's a people that the Lord is preparing to bring home. And the way that you can tell you're on your way to the holy city of Zion prepared for you by God is you dress a certain way and you practice certain things. You look like the character of God and you do what he says. So as the people of God, we ought to look like what God has promised us. So what is the big idea for this morning? Trust that the Lord is making you now what he promises you will be. Trust that the Lord is making you now what he promises you will be. Before I read the text for us, let me tell you where we are headed. Three big points that the Lord is making us a righteous people. The Lord is making us a faithful people. And the Lord is making us a gathering people. Trust that the Lord is making us now what he promises we will be. And that means that the Lord is making us a righteous people. 
The Lord is making us a faithful people, and the Lord is making us a gathering people. With that in mind, if you would please stand for the reading of God's word, Isaiah 56. Starting in verse 1. This is what the Lord says, Preserve justice and do what is right. For my salvation is coming soon and my righteousness will be revealed. Happy is the person who does this, the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. No foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say, The Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch should not say, Look, I'm just a dried up tree. For the Lord says this, For the eunuch who keeps my Sabbaths and chooses what pleases me and holds firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. As for the foreigner, foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to become his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold firmly to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Who gathers the dispersed of Israel, I will gather to them still others besides those already gathered. This is the word of God. You may be seated. We jump in right here in the first couple of verses of Isaiah 56, and it tells us who we're supposed to be. This is what the Lord says, preserve justice and do what is right, for my salvation is coming soon and my righteousness will be revealed. Happy is the person who does these things. That you got to know that, that justice and righteousness for God are absolutely central to his character and his purposes for his people and his world. What do I mean by that? Psalm 89.14 and Psalm 97.2 say that justice and righteousness are the foundation of his throne. There's nothing more central to the rule of God as king over the world than he seeks justice and righteousness and it's at the heart of his character. If you've been following the Bible reading plan that the church is going through, then you've read two extremely significant texts about justice and righteousness this week. First, Genesis 18, 18 to 20. It's not just that God is righteousness, but in injustice and righteousness are important to him and his character, but he, it's important for his people. In, in Genesis 18, 18 to 20, he actually says that this is the reason that he chose Abraham. Listen to this. You read it earlier this week, I'm sure. Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. How is he going to do it? For I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord. By doing what? By doing righteousness and justice. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. Did you hear that? If you're a child of Abraham by faith, 
then his purpose for you is to fulfill his promise to Abraham and bless all nations by making us a people of justice and righteousness. It's not just central to his character. It's not just central to him and his kingship. Because it's central to him and his kingship and his rule, his subjects are also shaped by justice and righteousness. If we worship a king who is just and righteous, then we will become a just and righteous people. So what is justice and righteousness? These two extremely vague terms that I've said roughly 24 times at this point. Well, the second text that you would have read this week, if you're following the Bible reading plan, is you would have read a good chunk of Job. And within that, you would have read Job 29, verses 11 to 17. In this text, you may know the story of Job. Job was a righteous man. And the Lord tested him and brought suffering into his life. And in Job 29, what Job is describing is the way that people thought about him before the suffering entered into his life. Uh, once he experiences an extreme amount of suffering, even his wife turns his back on him. But this describes what he was doing before and why people thought well of him. And in the middle of this, it describes everything that Job has done as justice and righteousness. Listen to Job. Job 29, when they heard me, they blessed me, and when they saw me, they spoke well of me. Why? For I rescued the poor who cried out for help, and the fatherless child who had no one to support him. The dying blessed me, and I made the widow's heart rejoice. How is this described in Job, his actions? I clothed myself in righteousness, and it enveloped me. My just decisions, my justice, were like a robe and a turban. You can tell where Job is headed because of what he's wearing. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I examined the case of the stranger. I shattered the fangs of, of the unjust and snatched the prey from its teeth. This is a description of what God's people are to be. Did you hear it? Rescue the poor who cry out for help, and the fatherless child had no one to support him. Made the widow's heart rejoice, eyes to the blind, feet to the lame, father to the needy. Examine the case of the stranger, shattering the fangs of unjust oppressors. Isaiah says that this is who we are to be. It's not just that, that you can get it from Psalm and Genesis and Job, but this is a theme that runs throughout Scripture, and we can see it right there at the beginning of Isaiah in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 17, we support a ministry called Isaiah 117 House, and here's what they do and why they are called Isaiah 117. Isaiah, in the very first chapter, to a sinful people says this, learn to do what is good. What does that look like? Pursue justice. What does that look like? Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Now, when we start to talk about things like serving the poor, we immediately start to get into politics, don't we? You're already thinking, is this guy a Democrat or a Republican? Scratch it from your mind. Don't let political agendas set the stage for what your obedience to Jesus looks like. Let the text do it. And what I mean by that is you start to think nationally, how do we settle issues of poverty? How do we settle issues of poverty in Memphis? I got, I got an answer for you. I have no idea. Nor have I been given wisdom by God to be able to discern that. Other people are trying to figure out that. And you can vote for those people that you think are going to do it most wisely. The question is, do you love the poor who are right here? 
You can ask, do you love people generally? You can see if you love people generally by if you love your neighbors, the person sitting next to you. So the question is, in the people of God here first, do we see at NBC that we love the poor and needy? That we make the widow rejoice? That we serve as a father to the needy? That we would welcome anyone in here so that they might experience the grace and mercy of God. You could also branch that out to starting here. We could think about our city. Rather than thinking about all the solutions that you think are so wise, you can try to implement them. I tell you, it's going to be hard. But a question I have for you is when you hear that there is someone who is poor, you think about those in poverty, what is your first thought? Is it condemnation or compassion? Because I can tell you that the Lord's first thought is compassion. This is the time to check your heart, not about what policies you think are going to fix it, but do you love them? Because the Lord does. The foundation of his throne is justice and righteousness, and it's been described for us in the text. So we just pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, and we become these people, right? Uh, I'll take you back to our big idea that we trust that the Lord is making us now what he promises we will be. What do I mean by that? Well, when you read the book of Isaiah, what I've already said in chapter 1, he tells us to an unrighteous people who are laden with sin, iniquity, and guilt, do justice, correct the oppressor. But throughout the book of Isaiah, the people of God never do what God asks them to do. God even told Isaiah that this would be the case. In chapter 6, after Isaiah sees his glory on the throne and sees people around and, and cherubim and seraphim around the throne saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And, and, and Isaiah is captured by this vision. And, and Isaiah says, all right, what am I going to do? What do you want me to do? I'll go for you. Send me out. What do you want? He says, preach. He's like, all right, I'll do it. What do you want me to preach? Well, tell them that you're going to preach, but they're not going to understand Tell them that you're going to preach, but they're not going to see anything that I'm doing. And, and tell them that you're going to preach, but their hearts are going to be dull and they're never going to be changed. Woo! Let's go! And so Isaiah does this, by my estimation, for 60 years. And during that time, he sees the people of God slowly exiled in judgment. The northern tribes go first, then Judah. And the only thing that remains is Jerusalem. The people of God are almost completely wiped out and Isaiah just continues to preach the word. But the people never respond. And so how are they going to become righteous? How are you going to become righteous and do justice and, pre and preserve our righteousness and not desecrate the Sabbath? How are you going to do that? Are you just going to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps? No, the Lord makes us righteous. Listen, back to Isaiah 1, we could go. Here's how he describes the people of Jerusalem. They weren't righteous. The faithful town, what it was, what an adulteress she has become. She was once full of justice. Righteousness once dwelt in her, but now murders. Your silver has become dross to be discarded. Your beers diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, friends of thieves. They all love uh, and chase after bribes. They do not defend the rights of the fatherless, and the widow's case never comes before them. 
Therefore the Lord God of armies, the mighty one of Israel, declares, I will get even with my foes. I will take revenge against my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and will burn away your dross completely. I will remove all your impurities. I will restore your judges to what they were at first and your advisors to what they were at the start. Afterward, after I purify you, God says, what will your name be? The one that was righteous but is no longer. The one who was faithful but is no longer. Once the Lord has purified his people, this city will be called the righteous city and a faithful town. Verse 27 of Isaiah 1, Zion will be redeemed by what? Justice. Those who repent will be redeemed by righteousness. How is this possible? How is the Lord going to do it? This is the great text of Isaiah 52 and 53, the suffering servant that the Lord sends. After years and years of ministry, the people of God will not change their hearts, and so God must change their hearts for them. We see this, and we read it a little bit earlier. Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 11. This servant... looks like this. He himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all were astray like sheep and we all have turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He set, suffered injustice, but he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep silent before his shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living, he was struck down because of the people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. Listen to this. Because of the suffering of this servant, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will make many righteous. How is it that, that the unholy city becomes holy? How is it that the unfaithful city becomes faithful? How is it that the unjust city, the unrighteous city becomes a city full of justice and righteousness because of the suffering of the servant of the Lord? And I have good news for you two and a half millennia later. We know who this is. The, the unified witness of the New Testament and all of the authors of the gospel say that this servant has come in the person of Jesus Christ. God himself was going to return to his people and he came in the person of Jesus Christ. And all of them testify that he was crucified, but he was not crucified for his own iniquity, sin, and transgression. He was crucified for yours. And so if you're asking, how is it that I become what God has promised me? Listen again to the big idea. Trust that God is making you what he promises you will be. Put your faith in the suffering servant who is righteous and is now making many righteous by his blood. Because the one who was crucified did not stay in the grave. He rose from the dead and overcame sin and death. And therefore there's nothing in your life that can keep him from making you righteous if you put your faith in him. If you're not a Christian this morning, I couldn't be happier that you're here. 
the text here in Isaiah 56 says to do what is just and right because his salvation is coming soon and his righteousness will be revealed. The Lord is coming back and you will face his judgment just like I will. And you will be safely through his judgment only for the same reason that I might be and that is because I've put my faith in Jesus. So I invite you this morning, if you are not a Christian, put your faith in Jesus, the one who has suffered for your iniquity, transgression, and sin, and invite you to know him now, that you might be a part of that new creation, that holy city, one day, that I might feast with you in the house of Zion, that we might sing together. He's done great things. He invites you this morning to know him. God of justice and righteousness, invites you to become one who is justice, who is just and righteous. Verse 2 of Isaiah 56 says, Happy is the person who does this, the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps his hand from doing evil. You know, there's a phrase that we often use, or maybe we don't often use it. It's a cultural phrase. Maybe you've never used it before, but we call something sinfully delicious. Right? I guess righteously delicious doesn't have quite the same ring to it. I don't know. But implied within that is that sin is more pleasurable than righteousness. That going against the things of God is better than being holy. Consistently, Scripture disagrees with this statement. Happy is the person who pursues justice and righteousness. This is what God has designed you to be in the fullness of joy is at his right hand. It says, happy is the person who does this, and so I invite you to the fullness of joy and obedience to God, the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it. Now, I could spend an even longer time here than I did on justice and righteousness, but I won't do it. I'll just say to go, uh, the past two sermons I've preached have had Sabbath in there. Go listen to those. There's a little bit in there. You can, you can gather a little bit. But what does it mean to desecrate the Sabbath, at least here in Isaiah 56? What it means to desecrate the Sabbath, the way that God's people were doing it, is not that they ignored observing the Sabbath. They did it. You go back to Isaiah 1 and see. Isaiah 1 describes the people of God observing the Sabbath, except he hates their observance of the Sabbath. Let me read this to you from Isaiah 1. And I think we can get a better idea of what it means for him to, for us to desecrate the Sabbath. We got Isaiah 1, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He's calling the people of Jerusalem by the name of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's how great their sin is. What are all your sacrifices to me, asked the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. Do you see what it's saying? I don't like your sacrifices. You know what that means? They're offering sacrifices. Right? They're, they're, it looks like they're following the law of the Lord. When you come to appear before me, who acquires this from you, this trampling of my courts? They're coming to the presence of God, but they're trampling his courts. Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. 
I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I'm tired of putting up with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. So what does it mean for them to desecrate the Sabbath? Why are they trampling the courts? Why is it that God will refuse to hear their prayers? It says at the end that their hands are covered with blood. Here's what they were doing. They would go into and celebrate the Lord with a festival, but it was as if they were celebrating their sin from the rest of the week because they didn't do anything of God the rest of the time. What they expected is they could live however they want to, but as long as they showed up on Sunday, so to speak, God would still bless them. Be like, yep, that's my people. The problem is when they leave the presence of God, when you leave this place and you claim the name of Jesus, you take the name of the Lord with you, and what you do says, that's who my God is. And you bring that back in here without the confession of sin, that is a trampling of his courts and a defiling and profaning of a holy name. He will not listen to that. That's why it's so important that when we come together, I love the fact that our church does a prayer of confession. We don't assume that in our pursuit of justice and righteousness throughout the week that we have done it perfect, perfectly. In fact, we know that we haven't. But it's not a trampling of the courts when you come in here and you've sinned throughout the week. It's a trampling of his courts when you come in here with your sin and don't confess it to him. The way that you are redeemed by justice and righteousness is not because you do justice and righteousness and God says, all right, you've earned your way in. This is really important to see. The previous chapter of Isaiah 55. How is it that even in our sin, we could come into his presence and not trample his courts? Look at Isaiah 55, 6 to 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked one abandon his way, and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Listen to the response of the Lord when you come into his presence, acknowledging your sin to him, so he may have compassion on them. And to our God, let them come to our God, for he will freely forgive. The message here in preserving justice and righteousness is not that you do this by your own power, but you trust that what the Lord promises that you'll be, He's working in you right now. This is a text in Philippians 2, Paul writing to the church. After he talks about the death and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have done in my presence, now much more in my absence, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Why can you do that? Am I earning my salvation, Paul? No, you do that because God is at work in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. How are you going to become a person of justice and righteousness that reflects the character of God? You trust that he is making you what he promises you will be. You trust that he will clothe you with righteousness and justice like he did Job because you're on the way to the holy city. Trust that the Lord is making you he promises you will be the Lord is making us a righteous people next the Lord is making us a faithful people look at Isaiah 56 starting in verse 3 this is a beautiful text no foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say the Lord will exclude me from his people and the eunuch should not say look I am a dried up tree 
What's going on in this text? Well, we'll be able to unpack it for the next little while here. But notice that the eunuch and the foreigner are defining themselves by their natural bodies, not by what God is making them to be. The eunuch is unable to have children, and that will be the focus of the eunuch later. There are eunuchs by birth, there are eunuchs that make themselves eunuchs to serve in a royal court, and then there are eunuchs, Jesus says, that do it for the sake of the kingdom of God. And he says, I'm just a dried up tree. What use am I to God? Why, why would he say that he's just a dried up tree if he can't have children? I mean, from Genesis 3.15, there's a promise that God's redemption is going to come by the son of Eve. The promise of Abraham and to his people is to Abraham and his children. This concept and these genealogies that you read in the Old Testament that you think are so boring, everyone is packed Every genealogy, every name that's named is packed with the anticipation is, is this the one who will crush the head of the serpent? Is this the one who will bless all nations? And the promise made to David's line, is this the one who will finally be our just and righteous king to deliver us from our enemies? The eunuch who can't have children feels like he can't participate in the promises of God. He says, because of my body, because of what I am unable to do in my flesh, I guess I'm just a dried up tree, useless to the Lord. The foreigner assumes here that he's excluded from the people of God because the promises of the covenant are just for Israel. He's defining himself not by anything that he has done, but simply by where and when he was born. And the Lord says, don't do that. Because the Lord says something else. Look at verse 4. You may say that. You may come up with excuses for why you can't participate in the blessings of God. But verse 4 says, but the Lord says this. Here's what he says to the eunuch. For the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, we just talked about it, live righteous and just lives, come into his presence with repentance and worship, and choose what pleases me and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial. And a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. What the eunuch assumes that he doesn't have because of his body, the Lord blesses him more than he can imagine. Look at what it says. It says, I will give them in my house and within my walls, the one who is faithful to my covenant. I will give him within my house and within my walls. This ought to be shocking to you, those of you who know Deuteronomy 23. Because the eunuch is not allowed to go into the temple. But here the Lord says, within my house and within my walls, he will be welcomed. Not only will he be welcomed, he will be giving a memorial and a name that will last forever in my presence. That's better than children. And one of the ways that we continue our legacy and our line, even today, is through our children. The Lord's blessed me with four in his kindness. And they carry my name. One of them carries the name of Isaiah. The eunuch doesn't have that option. But notice what the Lord says. The Lord doesn't say, and sons and daughters aren't that great. Children are, you know, they're okay. They're a gift and blessing from the Lord. And yet, to the eunuch, he will give them something better. Better than children is an everlasting name that will never be cut off. 
I assume that what this means that just has been earlier talked about in the book of Isaiah will be talked about in the book of Revelation that his name is written in the book of life and cannot be removed. His legacy is not carried on by the children that he has in the flesh, but rather his legacy is carried on by the eternal God who never dies. And though we die, we live in him. If we could just stop here for a moment. When we talk about not having children in this context, in our context, we're going to live righteous and just lives. We're talking about people who are single in our context and married couples who have struggled to have children. Here's what this says. To the eunuch, he said this, and to you, he says this. You are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. What the Lord has promised you because of your faith in him is greater than any children you might or might not have. Your ability to pursue justice and righteousness is not dependent upon your relationship status, but your relationship with the Lord. When you bind yourself to him, he produces the fruit of righteousness and justice. You don't need anyone else for that romantically. Single person, pursue the kingdom of God with all that you have, knowing that you're not a second class citizen and the Lord does not restrict your blessing based on your relationship status. So preserve justice and do what is right and come into his presence with thanksgiving and praise knowing that he loves you. The one who is married and struggles to have children. Perhaps you've even experienced miscarriage on your way to trying to have children. The picture in Isaiah 56 is of a eunuch, a male, who cannot help produce children. But the picture in Isaiah 54 is of a barren woman who rejoices in her Lord. Because of the work of the suffering servant, listen to Isaiah 54, rejoice. Childless one who did not give birth, burst into song and shout, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of the married woman. There's a promise to hold on to right there. That the children of God, that the, that the children that you have are not simply produced from your body, but what you do by faith in the Spirit. This is what Paul says to Timothy. By the way, two of the greatest figures, I mean, the greatest figure in the Bible, and then one of them was single, right? Jesus never married. Paul, never married. But you know what Paul calls Timothy when he writes a letter to him? He calls him his son in the faith. Listen, I'm not saying that there's not pain in what you're experiencing. What I am saying that there is still a blessing from God that your natural body cannot cancel out. Isaiah knows this. I mean, they knew it much more then. The mortality rate of childbirth was much higher. But because of the work of the servant in 52 and 53 to make many righteous, Isaiah feels the freedom in 54 to turn to the, the childless one and say rejoice. <laughs> that, that the children of the one who is barren will be much more than the one who is married. If you join yourself 
by faith to the Lord and he produces righteousness and justice in you. You will have sons and daughters in the faith. This is the story of the eunuch who by faith is welcomed into the presence of God and despite his natural ability cannot do it. And the reason I say that he is making the eunuch what he promises he will be by this servant. You just got to flip over to Isaiah 61. This is what Jesus quotes in Luke 4 at the beginning of his ministry. He says this, Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Sounds like justice and righteousness. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. Now remember what the eunuch said, I am but a dried up tree. Look at what he's making his people, the servant of the Lord that we know is Jesus, because he quotes it in Luke 4 and says, this is me. And they will be called righteous trees, planted by the Lord to glorify him. There's nothing in your natural body that God can't take and turn for his glory. And so what this text is telling you to do is stop defining yourself simply by your natural body and trust what the Lord is making you because he's promised you to be something else. And then he goes on to the foreigner. Deuteronomy 23 speaks also of the foreigner, that the foreigner shouldn't enter into the temple, and yet he does here. Listen to what he says about the foreigner. Notice, too, that, that these promises that God has for him is specific to them. He doesn't simply repeat the same thing, but he defines his blessings to them in an overturning of their natural state. As for the foreigners, verse 6 of Isaiah 56, who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to become his servants. I just want to stop there. I'm not going to spend a whole time on this, but if you want to go back and look at what the Levitical priesthood is supposed to do, it's this. Minister to the Lord. Love the name of the Lord. Put the name of the Lord on his people. That's what number six is about. And to become his servants. This describes the Levitical priesthood. That's just not an Israelite. That's a special class of Israelite that are dedicated to service of God's presence in the temple. They don't even have any land. Why? Because their inheritance is God himself. And this says a foreigner will have the same role in the temple of God that the Levitical priesthood did. I mean, if, if I'm an Israelite in Isaiah, and I don't understand anything about what God is doing, I'm like, whoa! I'm not even a Levite. Some foreigner's going to serve in your temple? I can't even do that. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold firmly to my covenant. The same people, right? This foreigner that's excluded from the temple will become part of the Levitical priesthood, it says, because they keep the Sabbath, do justice and righteousness, and hold firmly to his covenant. They are faithful to his commands. And he says this in 7, I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. The nations are streaming to God's presence. They will serve the local priesthood and God will hear their prayers. Now, here, let me say this quickly. Deuteronomy 23 says that, that eunuchs and, and that foreigners aren't allowed into the temple it's not because 
they're eunuchs and foreigners. It's because most likely they've made themselves eunuchs in service to another god. And as a foreigner, they probably worship the gods and the nations, and therefore they're not allowed in. The fact that foreigners are allowed into the people of God is, is it's true from the beginning. I mean, two great examples are Rahab and Ruth. You might know the story. In the great paradigmatic redemptive event of the Old Testament, God delivers his people from slavery in Egypt. He takes them across the waters. He splits the waters in two. They walk across dry ground. They worship him in Exodus 15. They wonder for a little while because they were sinful. But God still fulfills his promise to take them to the promised land. And they send people in to Canaan where God is going to judge the Canaanites for centuries of sin. And there's one woman, Rahab. She's a Canaanite, a foreigner. But she is incorporated into the people of God. Why? Because she says, I've seen and I've heard of the God of Israel. And I know that Yahweh, your God, is greater than all the gods of the nations. And I put my faith in him. She's brought into Israel, a foreigner, a Canaanite that is facing God's judgment. She comes in into the people of God because of faith. She has joined herself to Yahweh by faith. In contrast to that, and this is part of the story, you have Achan, the Israelite of Israelites. He is supposed to receive the blessing of Israel, but he and his family are destroyed. Why? Because of their idolatry. Here in Isaiah, the people have assumed that we're going to receive the blessing of God despite my idolatry, despite my disobedience, despite the lack of my repentance, but surely a foreigner and a eunuch can't come in who has faith in Yahweh. Flip it. It doesn't matter who you are, where you were born, what you look like, what you dress like, what car you drive, what your zip code is. It doesn't matter if you don't have faith. You're not getting in. The flip side is you could have nothing but Jesus and you're in. The foreigner was always accepted. You think about Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess. Yeah, you know, she's part of the genealogy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Foreigners were always accepted by faith. Just like Israel was always going to be receiving the blessings by faith. So here the foreigner is brought to the holy mountain. How are they going to be brought? Are they going to just conjure this up themselves? No, it's the Lord's working. Trust that God is making you what he promises you will be. It's not hard. I mean, we could just read the entire book of Isaiah and all the promises of gathering the nations, but we'll just go to Isaiah 49 so we can stick with the theme of the servant. The servant in 49, the servant in 52 and 53, the servant in Isaiah 61. Here's what the servant does in Isaiah 49. Coasts and islands, listen to me. Distant peoples, pay attention. The Lord called me before I was born. He named me while I was in my mother's womb. He made my words like a sharp sword. He hid me in the shadow of his hand. He made me like a sharpened arrow. He hid me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant. At first, this is Israel in whom I will be glorified. But I myself said, I have labored in vain and spent my strength for nothing in futility. And my vindication is with the Lord. And my reward is with my God. And now, says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. You, you see what's happening here in this text. The Lord called his people to be a certain thing, to be a light to the nations, but they couldn't do it on their own. So they were the servant of the Lord, but he calls a servant 
to redeem Israel, to bring Jacob back to himself. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, it is not enough for you to be my servant. Pay attention to this. It is not enough for you to be my servant and simply raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the protected ones of Israel. Now, that's a big deal. That's fulfilling the promises of God. But he says, it's too little for my servant. I got bigger plans. I got bigger promises. All the way back to Abraham, I'm going to bless all nations. So it's not enough just to bring my people Israel back to myself. What is, what, what is he going to do? I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. It's not that God said he wouldn't include the foreigner. It's that the people didn't see it. This is the same thing when the people encountered Jesus in the flesh. It's not that God said he would come and that he would be crucified. He did say it in his word. They just didn't see it. Why? Because we don't want to follow a crucified king. Because we might be crucified ourselves. But if we follow a crucified king, we'll also follow him into his resurrection. This is the same thing. We don't want people like us in our natural selves to be welcomed into the same family that we're in. So we see it in the text, but we can't see how it works out here, so we make it something different. The blessing's just for me. This isn't just in Isaiah. You think about the temple and welcoming the, pres the people into the presence of God. Do you realize that when the temple was built and Solomon blessed it in 1 Kings 8, did you know that he prayed that foreigners would come to the temple and that God would hear their prayers? Here's what he says in 1 Kings 8. Even for the foreigner who is not of your people Israel. This is Solomon praying to God. But has come from a distant land because of your name. Do you, you remember in Isaiah 56, the foreigner who binds himself to your name? For they will hear of your great name, strong hand and outstretched arm, and will come and pray toward this temple. May you hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all the foreigner asks. Then all the peoples of the earth will know your name to fear you as your people Israel do and to know that this temple I have built bears your name. This was God's design for his temple from the beginning, but his people lost sight of it. I wonder what you think NBC is for. Do you think it's just a place for you to gather or is it the starting point for God's mission in Memphis to gather the nations here? They gather people who aren't like you into his presence because that's what he promised. In the Gospels, Jesus picks up on Isaiah 56. And he finds people who are using his temple to exploit the poor and the foreigner. This is when he's turning over tables. He says, I came to make my house a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. I wonder how a visitor to our church would think about NBC. Do they see it as a place that they would be welcomed by faith to pray to the Lord? That the Lord would hear him. Do they see this place simply as a, a place of insiders who don't want others in? I pray that we would be a people of hospitality who long to see others who are not like us 
come to faith in Christ and join this family. It's hard to think of the, the, a eunuch and a foreigner without thinking of the Ethiopian eunuch of Acts 8. You can turn there. I mean, this is, this is God fulfilling his promise. And I think one of the main reasons this text is included in Acts is to show us that God is fulfilling his promises. We jump in in the text that the people of God are supposed to go from Judea or from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Philip at this point is traveling through Samaria and the Lord calls him somewhere else. Acts chapter 8 verse 26, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and went. There was an Ethiopian man, foreigner, a eunuch. I mean, your mind just got to be going, Isaiah 56! And a high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem. This Ethiopian eunuch, this foreigner who was a eunuch, who was, he is pursuing a relationship with Yahweh. So what, what is he doing? He's sitting in his chariot on his way home and reading the prophet Isaiah. <laughs> Glory to God. Verse 29, so the Spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. Hey, listen, if anybody's ever reading the book of Isaiah, go, go join. It's good stuff. Verse 30, when Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? <laughs> I mean, just you just got to hear the book of Isaiah throughout this. What is it that the people are going to do? They're going to hear, but they're not going to understand the prophet Isaiah. So Philip says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, the Ethiopian eunuch, unless someone guides me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Man, I wish evangelism went like this. Hey, you're reading Isaiah already. You understand that thing? No, come sit with me and talk to me about it. Okay. The Spirit doesn't seem to work the same way for me. Now, verse 32. The scripture passage he was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before its shearer, he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation for his life is taken from the earth? He's reading the suffering servant of Isaiah. I mean, the Spirit took him there for this very purpose. An Ethiopian eunuch right there in 52 and 53. Now oh, it's beautiful. And then verse 34, again, evangelism doesn't normally go like this for me. The eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who's the prophet saying this about? Himself or someone else? Oh, I love that question. Philip, yeah, home run here. Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus beginning with that scripture. Now, I love this. I love this so much because it, it, Philip is doing what Jesus did in Luke 24. Uh, Luke 24, Jesus beginning with the law of Moses. The law of Moses, he tells 
the entire Old Testament story and that it centers on him. Philip is just modeling what Jesus did and beginning with a suffering servant. He tells him the good news of Jesus and it's really hard for me to believe it's not in the text, but I, but I, think, I think it's probably happened that if Philip knows anything about Isaiah, it's just a couple chapters later where Isaiah says the eunuch will come to the house of the Lord. The foreigner will be joined to the name of Yahweh and receive the blessings of the covenant. I got to believe that Philip says, hey, can we just read a couple chapters ahead? Here you are! That right now, in our presence, God is fulfilling His promises and He's making you what He promised you would be. Verse 36, as they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. Listen to this question. Don't miss it. Look, here's water. <laughs> Look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? The eunuch in Isaiah 56 assumed that because he was a dry tree, he wouldn't participate in the blessings of God. The foreigner assumed that because he was a foreigner, he would be excluded from the people of God. Philip explains the gospel to the Ethiopian foreign eunuch. And what's the eunuch's response? Now is there anything keeping me? Is there anything keeping me from being baptized? Is there anything keeping me receiving the sign that I'm going to die to sin and live to righteousness? Not only now, but my body will be raised from the dead in glory. Is there anything keeping me receiving that sign? Philip doesn't answer the question verbally. Look at verse 38. He ordered the chariot to stop. What's the answer? No! Nothing! Why? Because you have joined yourself to Yahweh by faith and every blessing that is in Christ is yours. Something far greater than children. You come into the presence of God, you bear His name, you go into His very presence and He will hear your prayers. You go in by the blood of the suffering servant, He will make you righteous. Does the fact that you're a eunuch or a foreigner matter? No, because you've joined the Lord by faith. So he ordered the chariot to stop and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. Right then and there, the Ethiopian eunuch realized that he could trust that the Lord was making him now what he promised that he will be by faith. Christian, I wonder if you still have an idea in your mind that, that the Lord's blessing the fullness of his blessing in Christ is not for me because of X, Y, or Z. What is it in your mind? Is it some physical trait? Uh, we can scoff at that, but when we look in the mirror, the enemy does his work. Is it a physical feature that we have that we're ashamed of? Is it something in our past that we have done? Is it something in our past that has been done to us? And we bring that shame and we think, surely the Lord won't bless me. Brothers and sisters, i got to be honest with you. If you don't struggle with that, I don't know if you're human. You can ask my wife, I struggle with this. There are things in my past that I've done that have been done to me, and I say, surely the Lord can't bless me like he is. And I come to a text like Isaiah 56, and he says, it does not matter if you join me by faith and you've repented of your sin, you've been cleansed and made righteous. It doesn't matter whether ethnicity, race, color, city you're from, state, whatever. It does not matter if you join him by faith. 
You are his. And no matter what has been done to you that might bring you shame, if you have joined yourself to the Lord by faith, you are his and everything that is Christ's is yours. The Lord is making us now a faithful people because he's making us now what he promised that we will be. He's making us a just and righteous people because he's making us now what he promised we will be. And finally, and very quickly, the Lord is making us a gathering people. And by this, I don't simply mean that, that we gather like we are now, but look at Isaiah 56. I mean, this is an incredible text. Verse 8, this is the declaration of the Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel. I will gather to them still others besides those already gathered. Uh, this, this is beautiful. I mean, as we, as we work through Acts, and we see that, that God is beginning in Jerusalem, then he goes to Jesus, then he goes to Samaria, then he goes to the ends of the earth. Philip doesn't stop with the Ethiopian union and be like, so that was it, Lord? We good? He's gathering more still after that. And here's what I wish. I wish, I wish that you could see who you actually are. I really do. And I wish you could see it from a biblical perspective. And I don't just mean who you are in Christ. That you are sanctified, that you are holy, that you are righteous, that you are loved, that you are forgiven, that you are a royal priesthood, as was read earlier, that you are a servant in the kingdom of God. Not just that. But I wish that we could take either the prophet Isaiah or somebody who heard his message at the time and actually believed it, and we could transfer him both geographically and temporally right here in the Midtown Baptist Church and just let him walk through the doors and say, hey, check this out. Two and a half millennia later, two and a half millennia later, on the other side of the world, we're gathering to worship the God you worship. We have experienced the Messiah that was promised to you. We know and believe that he died for our sin, that he raised from the dead for our justification, and we have gathered this morning to worship him. I guarantee you, because you exist that person would bow down and worship to our God. You have no idea who you are. That you, your very presence, your faith in Christ is the fulfillment of God's promises. This is why it's not just that God is making you something that you're going to be in the future, but because he has made you a new creation in Christ, you are the very embodiment of the fulfillment of God's promises that Abraham and all the way through the saints have longed to see you come to faith. Have you ever thought about yourself that way? That your existence is evidence of God's faithfulness to his promises. Because he's making you who you promised, he promised you will be, does that not make you want to love him? to walk in justice and righteousness, walk in the joy that the Lord has for you, cast aside any failing and shortcoming you might have, either physically or spiritually, and trust yourselves to a good shepherd who loves you enough to make his word go for two and a half millennia to reach Memphis, Tennessee. And he's not done. He's still gathering people to himself. If the Lord can take a fruitless man in a foreign court 
and make him a fruitful tree in the kingdom of God, then he can do the same for you. There's nothing that keeps you from the promises of God if you have faith in him. And there's nothing that keeps you from walking out these doors when we are done to walk in justice and righteousness, imperfectly but faithfully, knowing that you come back in repentance. And not only will you come back in thanksgiving and rejoicing in what the Lord has done, but he will delight in your offering to him. We are a people who gather not only here, but we then are sent out to gather more, to experience the faithfulness of a God that we know in Christ. Children, I'm not going to skip you here. I feel like I have to talk at the end. If I talk at the beginning, you'll just not listen to anything else. But now I've got you at the end. I'm sure I held your attention the whole time. This thing that we're talking about, that we have these things that we just don't think we're going to be accepted by God because of who we are or what we look like or something that we, that we do. You're going to have friendships throughout your life. And someone will be good and then something's going to happen. Somebody's going to wrong somebody and you're going to break apart. Or you have people that consistently, they make fun of you for something. The way you talk, the way you laugh, just your face, something about you. But can I tell you this? That if you put your faith in the Lord, the most beautiful, glorious, honorable God of the universe looks at you and calls you friend. And he invites you this morning to put your faith in him. And it doesn't matter that you're a child. It doesn't matter that you might have disobeyed mommy and daddy yesterday or just five minutes ago. He will accept you by faith because he loves you and he wants to make you something glorious. Same is true for us. So let's go to him now knowing that he hears us in the name of Jesus. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that we can trust you, that you are making us who you promise we will be. That you promised to Abraham that you would make a people that are righteous and just. And so we trust that you will make us that. We put our faith in you. We believe that no matter who we have been or who we are in our phys physical bodies, you can use us to advance your kingdom. You can delight in us for who we are. when We put our faith in you and so we put our trust in you this morning. Father, we believe that you're still gathering people. It's, it's unbelievable that you would include us so far away and so much later into your promises, and yet you do. So, Lord, we believe and trust that you are faithful, and we pray that you would send